0: John chapter 1, verse 1, this is the word of God. Let us hear it. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 18. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. If I could call your attention to that statement given to us in verse 14, a very concise statement, yet a very profound statement, one that we do well to contemplate when we read the words, and the word was made flesh. And the word was made flesh. It's a good practice to look at the various designations that are given to Christ in the gospel accounts of his birth. The other night when we had our Fellowship of young adults, we spent a little bit of time looking at some of these designations. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins, the angel of the Lord says to Joseph in Matthew 1 and verse 21. Two verses later, verse 23, we read, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Between these two names, we have a description of his nature and an explanation of his work. He is God, God with us. There's his nature, and his work is to save his people from their sins. That's the significance of the name Jesus. The name means literally Jehovah is salvation or Jehovah saves. In Luke's account, he's also called a Savior. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. And then this Savior's character is described. He is Christ, the Lord. He's the anointed one. That's the meaning of the term Christ. And he rules over all. He is Lord. You are aware, I'm sure, of the captivating narrative that describes the birth of Christ. What a challenge it must have been for Joseph and Mary having to make their way to Jerusalem, or to Bethlehem, rather, to be taxed. And what hardship they faced when it came time for Mary to give birth to Christ. And how awesome and heartwarming an account we have of the shepherds seeing on a dark and mundane night of tending sheep, all of a sudden the heavens opened hearing the message preached to them by an angel that unto them a child was born. And this angelic sermon was then followed with a heavenly anthem sung by a multitude of angels, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. You ever had an experience in your life where you went instantly from a sense of drowsy sleepiness to becoming perhaps more wide awake than you've ever been in your whole life? Well, that would have been the experience of those shepherds on that night. So we have these vivid accounts of the events that led to the birth of Christ, the event of the actual birth, as well as the account of what took place sometime after, when he was a very young child, when it comes to the visit of the wise men from the East, you see... Christ is referred to twice in Matthew chapter 2, not as a babe, but as a young child. Would it be possible to take these vivid and theologically rich accounts of the birth of Christ and reduce them down to a very short and concise statement? Well, this is where John's gospel comes in with his account of the birth of Christ. We don't generally think of John, do we, as giving us any account of Christ's birth because he doesn't go into any of the details that Matthew and Luke give us in their gospel narratives. And yet John does touch upon the truth of Christ's birth in a very unique and significant and concise way when he says in the words of our text, verse 14, and the word was made flesh. There's the whole matter in a nutshell, if you will. A very short and concise sentence, the word was made flesh. Now Christ is given a lot of names in scripture. I've just now mentioned the significance of Jesus, Jehovah is salvation, and Emmanuel, God with us. We could add Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. But only here in John's Gospel, and only in the beginning chapter of John's Gospel, as well as in his first epistle, do we find Christ referred to as the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Like Matthew and Luke, we certainly have in this designation of Christ something that is very rich and very profound, In the beginning was the Word, indicating the beginning of time. The Word precedes the creation of the world, and in fact had his part in the creation of the world. John 1 and verse 3, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So this Word is eternal. He precedes the beginning of time. We have a very plain statement that supports the truth that we worship the triune God. This word that was God was also with God. So John the Baptist would say in verse 34, I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Strong statement depicting the deity of this word. And so it is this word, this eternal word, this word that was with God and was God, this word that created everything that was made, who was also the source of light and life, that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. It is this word which, according to John, in verse 14, became flesh. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What I'd like to consider this afternoon, in the moments that remain, is where this truth of the word made flesh leads us, where it should lead us. The word was made flesh flesh. What does that mean? Where does that take us? What does that do for us? What should be our reaction and response? Remember what we covered this morning. We want to bridge the gap. We want to respond to the Word. We want to be doers of the Word. Well, what about our response to the Word made flesh? Consider with me, first of all, that the Word made flesh leads us to the knowledge of God. The Word made flesh leads us to the knowledge of God. No man has seen God at any time, John tells us in verse 18. You know, there's something ironic in that statement. No man has seen God at any time. It wasn't supposed to be like that. God didn't create man in order to have somebody to hide himself from. He created man rather to have constant communion with him, and in that communion, man would glorify and enjoy him forever. You know the story. Adam and Eve had the glorious privilege of walking with God in the cool of the day in the garden of paradise, But they abused that privilege by doing the one thing they were commanded not to do. They ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They bought into the devil's lie that they would become gods themselves. And ironically, man has been living that way ever since. As if he's God. As if he's his own determiner of right and wrong as if the universe should revolve around him, and everything should be all about him. He being made for the glory of the one to whom all glory and honor is due. And since that fall, the history of civilization has been, in a sense, a history of competing demigods. And in that history, man has not seen God nor does he have the desire to see God. His desire, rather, is to suppress the innate knowledge that he still possesses of God. He knows, you see, in the bottom of his heart that he's a creature of God, that he's accountable to God. But in his darkness, he strives to fashion a God in his own imagination so that he can issue his decree as to what God in his judgment ought to be like if he decides to assign to the God of his mind any existence at all. And just as surely as the history of fallen man is the history of countless numbers of religions and superstitions, so that history proves the statement of John 1, 18, that no man has seen God at any time. But now comes the marvel of our text. The word was made flesh. Look at what verse 18 goes on to say. The only begotten, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. The word declared in that statement means literally to draw out in narrative or to unfold a teaching. We get our word exegesis from this Greek word. Biblical preaching is supposed to be exegetical preaching, explanatory preaching, drawing out of the Bible its truths, as opposed to the too common practice of eisegesis, which is reading something into the Bible instead of drawing the truths out of the Bible. So the Word made flesh has declared God, or He has explained or exegeted or taught us about God. You begin to see the importance of the Word made flesh. Here is one who is qualified to teach about God, for He was in the beginning with God, and indeed He is God. Here is the one and only exception to the text that. No man has seen God at any time. Here is one most qualified to speak with authority on the subject of God, for in so doing, he speaks of himself and he speaks of his Father. And this is what gives so much significance to the title that John assigns to him in this opening chapter of John's Gospel. He is the Word made flesh. Think about that for a moment. Why is he called the Word? What is there about a word that would cause John to give the Son of God that particular designation? Perhaps the best way to grasp the meaning of that title is to think about your own word. When you give your word to someone, What have you really given to that person? Well, if you're a man or woman of integrity, you've given to someone else a pledge, a solemn pledge that you will be true to whatever obligation you've entered into with that other person. You perhaps heard the statement, my word is my bond. You are as good as your word. And it used to be that a handshake rather than a multiple-page legal contract designed to close loopholes would be a sufficient pledge. Here, then, is the words made flesh, God's pledge, God's bond, if you will, pertaining to the truth of who God is and what God has done, and in particular, how God pledges by his word to save every sinner that will receive Christ for salvation. So your word is your pledge, but it's more than that. What do you accomplish by your word? Well, it's through your word that you communicate, that you encourage or motivate or warn or explain things to someone else. It is the latter of these uses that I think comes out most clearly in the meaning of the word made flesh. And it's especially on this point that we have to think of the condescension of the word becoming flesh. I remember a number of years ago, there was a man who had submitted to me his testimony of salvation uh, in written form. He'd written it out and he wanted to distribute it to the people he worked with, but before he printed it out, he first submitted it to me for any suggestions I might have regarding it. I remember reading it, I was quite impressed with it, but I did make one suggestion that this brother acknowledged to be quite challenging. I suggested to him that he seek to write out his testimony in such a way that he would be endeavoring to give it to a very young child rather than to a mature adult. I was basically exhorting him to condescend to men of low estate, the very thing Paul tells us to do in Romans 12, 16. I think that when we strive to condescend and make our communication as simple and understandable to a child, unusual things start to happen. Adults gain a great deal more understanding than they otherwise otherwise might gain. I don't know how many of you are familiar with or have read R.C. Sproul's book entitled Holiness. Very popular book, perhaps the best known of all the books he's written. Gone through numerous printings. What many people may not know about that book is that when Dr. Sproul wrote it, He meant it to be a children's book. Lo and behold, it became a bestseller to adults. But if you and I find the task to be challenging, to condescend, to make our word understandable, how much more must such a challenge be to God? You think of it for a moment. He is the ruler of all creation He is infinite and eternal and unchangeable. He is so far above and beyond us that some skeptics come to the wrong conclusion that he's unknowable because he's too far beyond us. We just finished not long ago the course that I taught to our seminary students in theology proper And I remember a section in one of the textbooks in which the author was pointing out that there is actually something uh, that Christians can align themselves with when it comes to the viewpoint of skeptics. And that is that God is unknowable because He's too far beyond us, He's infinite, we are not, we're finite. How do you condescend to make yourself known when you are so far above and beyond us? How can we gain knowledge of him? How can he condescend so far as to make himself the least bit understandable to us? Well, here's how the words became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Father would condescend so low in order to make himself known that he would send his only begotten Son to become one of us to the point that he would enter into this world through a supernatural conception and be born of a virgin. As our shorter Catechism puts it, Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost and the womb of the Virgin Mary, and born of her yet without sin. This is the marvel of the Word made flesh. And what this means is that through Christ We have an authoritative and untainted source to tell us about God and to tell us about the things that pertain to God. We have a source we can trust when it comes to the matters that are most important to our souls, When it comes to understanding about heaven, understanding about hell, when it comes to understanding about the eternal destiny of your soul and where you'll go once you die, or to put it more simply, when it comes to understanding the truth of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we have an authoritative and untainted source to declare to us these things. This is where the Word made flesh leads us. It leads us to the knowledge of God, to the knowledge of ourselves, and to the knowledge of salvation. Now, in close connection to this, I would say to you, secondly, that the Word made flesh leads to communion with God. I know I'm overlapping in some respects our study from this morning. But the word made flesh leads us to communion with God. Notice the statement that immediately follows the word made flesh. It goes on to say that the word made flesh dwelt among us. The word dwelt means literally to pitch one's tent or tabernacle. He dwelt or he lived with us. His entrance into this world was not just a passing entrance, the way a traveler might stop briefly at a rest stop. No, he was here long enough to enable him to say that he grew up here. We didn't take the time to read it, but in Luke's gospel, we have the account of Christ being taken to the temple when he was eight days old to be subjected to the rite of circumcision, And in an incredible statement that defies comprehension, when you think that Christ is the Son of God, we have that statement in Luke chapter 2 and verse 40, which tells us, And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And immediately following the statement, Luke goes on to record the one and only incident that is given to us that describes Christ as a 12 year old boy who is left behind by his parents and then found in the temple in Jerusalem in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. Oh, this is Christ dwelling among us. And during this dwelling period, he calls his disciples to himself and they go with him wherever he goes. And he teaches them, and he discourses with them, and they have access to him. In his first epistle, John describes this process. Indeed, he makes it a point of emphasis, and something he could just not get over. He writes in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, which we heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life, for the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us, that which we have seen and heard, Declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible when it comes to the matter of our experiential communion with Christ. It's one thing to read in John's Gospel that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We recognize this as an historical statement. John is referring to his own time and experience. But when we come to his first epistle, he's demonstrating to us that the Word made flesh didn't simply lead to the people of that time knowing the blessing of God dwelling among them, but that blessing transcends time and comes down to us in such a way that you and I are led into the same blessing of Christ abiding with us and we with him look again at how he puts this this is first john chapter 1 and verse 3 that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John, and indeed the entire Bible, is not given to us simply to lead us to marvel at the experiences of others that they had with God during the time period of ancient history, No, these things are declared to us that we may enter into this fellowship or this communion with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship or communion with us. And truly our fellowship communion is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Do you see then how the Word made flesh leads us to communion with God? This is what you must ever keep in mind when you read your Bible. The Bible is the Word of God that brings you into communion with the God of the Word. This is not to say that we make an idol out of a physical book, which is simply paper and ink, but it is to say that the purpose this book serves is to bring you into fellowship with God. The word made flesh, then, leads us to authoritative and trustworthy knowledge of God, but it doesn't do so in order to simply provide us with a reliable source of theological education, it does so in order to lead us into fellowship with God through Christ. And could I just close by pointing out thirdly and finally, the word made flesh leads us to wonder and awe. The Word made flesh leads us to wonder and awe. There is one thing I enjoy about this Christmas season. It is the occasion it affords me to be led to wonder and awe by the truth of the Word made flesh. I know there's a lot about this time of year to distract us from that wonder and awe, things that vary from materialistic commercialism that dominates our culture to uh, the reformed view of some that protests any observance of this time of year at all. By the grace of God, we won't go in either direction. We will instead contemplate this glorious truth that unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given and the government is upon his shoulder and I have found him to be wonderful and he is my counselor. I most gladly confess him to be the mighty God and one with the everlasting Father and he certainly is my prince of peace insofar as that by his atoning death he has made my peace. And I marvel at so great salvation. But let me call you back to the words of our text. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And here is where I draw the point that the Word made flesh leads us to wonder and awe. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We behold His glory. This is where salvation leads. We behold his glory. We behold the glory of a babe in a manger because we see in that babe, not just any babe, even though the wonder of any child born is indeed a great wonder, but in this particular babe we see the word made flesh. I do believe, however, it's important to keep in mind that the Gospel of John is written in retrospect. John wrote this gospel after he had walked with Christ for those three plus years. So when he says we beheld his glory, he's not speaking only with reference to that particular time when the word became flesh, but he's speaking with reference to the entire earthly ministry of Christ. And so we behold his glory and we enter into fellowship with him through the accounts of his birth, and we behold his glory when he is baptized and formally enters into his ministry as our covenant head and substitute, and we behold his glory in the many miracles that he performs, and we behold his glory in the way he debated and silenced his adversaries, We certainly behold his glory when we see him apprehended and tried before sinful men and condemned to die. We behold his glory through the most intense times of his passion his face beaten, his back whipped, a crown of thorns pressed into his brow, and then he at last is nailed to a cross and suspended between heaven and earth. And here especially can we affirm with John that this glory that we behold in Christ is full of grace and truth. He glorifies the truth that the wages of sin is death. He glorifies the truth that sin must be judged. He glorifies the truth that his father is just and that justice will prevail. But he also glorifies the truth that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you see him today as he's revealed in his word, are you beholding him as we've gathered to worship him? Behold the Lamb of God. That's what John the Baptist says a little later in this chapter. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Have you beheld him? Will you behold him? Here is grace magnified We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And here is where beholding his grace can and should lead you, it should lead you to receive him. Have you received him? Verse 12, as many as received him, gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Here is truth then, here is grace, the truth that all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. The grace, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all, and still more grace, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, It's no wonder that John writes in verse 16, and of his fullness have all we received and grace for grace. Our salvation is full in the sense that it's complete. There's nothing to add to it. It's a done deal. And it's grace upon grace, which means that his dealings with us are based on his grace and based on his love. Oh, how I hope and pray that you are and that you will behold his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And if you have not yet done so, I hope and pray that you will receive him. I'm here as your servant for Christ's sake to speak with you more about the matter of receiving him if you need that help. But the matter really is quite simple. You receive him by simply calling upon him. Well let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we thank thee for this wonderful, sublime, and glorious truth that the word was made flesh. May we behold him, O Lord, in his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And if there be any that to this date have not received him, O Lord, open their eyes and stop their ears, regenerate their hearts, renew their wills, and compel them to come to Christ for so great salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.